0: So, please pray with me. (coughs) Father God, your word is powerful in our midst. We thank you for the precious gift of it. Thank you for all the many people that copied it over centuries. Thank you that we have it open in front of us now. A word of life and light and power. And we pray, Father, that we would be humble before it and attentive to it. That your spirit would open it to us in truth. That we would be changed and transformed to be people who understand it and obey it and take it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Monday night was a red-letter night in the Hall House. Monday night was the night that we watched the last ever episode of Downton Abbey. And I know that we're a few months behind the rest of you because it aired months ago on PBS, but it's just become free on Amazon Prime. So Monday night was the big night for us. And uh, six years of watching one of our favorite shows, and now it's over. And in case you've never seen it, what is wrong with you? In case you've never seen Downton Abbey, then it's a British TV show. And it's set in a great big English country house in the early 20th century. And what's fascinating about this house is that upstairs, you've got this family that lives like kings and queens okay, in splendid opulence, Lord Grantham and his family. And in the same house, downstairs, are the servants' halls, where this whole army of servants uh, works day and night to produce the lifestyle that the great family enjoys. So the servants' lives revolve around the family, and they serve them, they cook for them, they clean for them, they mend their clothes, and they even dress them. It sounds like a pretty nice life for the family, that is. Um, But what's really interesting about the show is that the two uh, groups of people, the family upstairs and the servants downstairs, they're living in the same house, but they're living in two completely different worlds, two completely different worlds. And the interaction between those two kinds of worlds is uh, part of what makes the show so consistently fascinating. It's free on Amazon Prime, and you can watch the whole thing, (laughs) one season a day for a week. (laughs) <laughs> um, okay, so in the season that we just saw, there was a scene that really showed just how separated those two worlds were. Because what happened was that Lord Grantham and his whole family took a trip away from their home, and they left their servants alone in the house to clean and take care of things. And while they were away, the butler, Carson, who's the head of the servants, and the housekeeper, Mrs. Hughes are uh, working upstairs, tidying the family's main living room. And since they've been working hard, Mrs. Hughes suggests that they have a rest by sitting down on the family's gorgeous red velvet couch in the main living room. And Carson, the butler, is very hesitant about that idea. Because for him, that would be an enormous breach of etiquette. It's not appropriate for a man in his social position to sit down on the family couch, even though he was the head of all the servants and the family was never going to find out. He felt uncomfortable about that idea. And I suspect that if any of you have seen that that episode in that season, um, then you would find Carson's reluctance hard to understand. I expect that you'd find it hard to understand because that really isn't a part of our culture today anymore. And even I find it hard to understand, and I'm an Englishman. (laughs) And my grandparents were born into that world of Downton Abbey. It really wasn't very long ago. It was a world where people were assigned a place in society, a place that they were given at birth. So you might be born a king or an earl, or a servant, or a peasant laborer, but whatever you were, society expected you to know your place and not to have any thoughts about trying to change it. Now, I don't want to say that Jewish society in first century Israel was very much like Victorian England, but I do want to suggest this thing, that the idea that people had a place in society that they couldn't change no matter what was present there too, and especially that between the Pharisees, very high in the social hierarchy, and cripples and lame and blind people who are very low, there was a chasm that could not be crossed socially. So today we're going to look at Luke 14, and you can turn to it in the Pew Bibles, the Black Bibles. It's on page 874, Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's a whole shelf of them at the back. I think Stephen's going to hand some out. Luke chapter 14. And here we find Jesus uh, eating dinner with a group of Pharisees. It's a scene that began at the beginning of chapter 14 in verse 1 where Jesus is invited to dine with the ruler of the Pharisees. And we're picking it up after a couple of parts of their conversation in verse 12, where Jesus says this to his host. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So I want to start by thinking for a moment about those four types of people that Jesus mentioned. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and in their society, how stuck they were. How absolutely stuck. So if you were poor in first century Israel, you had pretty much zero chance of ever climbing out of your poverty. You would have no land to produce income, you would have no chance whatever of any sort of education, and you would have no opportunity to learn any skills of any trade that could make you money. So, of course, you were firmly stuck in your poverty, and the course of your life was firmly set. You were going to grind away as a laborer or a servant, or maybe even be reduced to begging until you met your early death. No amount of hard work was going to change that. No creativity or brilliant ideas would save you. You were well and truly stuck. So today in our society, we have a lot of people who are caught in poverty. But I don't think that any of them are as hopelessly stuck as the poor in the first century. Because today people can and do climb out of poverty from time to time. And some of them even rise meteorically to become rich and famous. Like J-Lo, she sang, don't be fooled by the rocks that I got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. Used to have a little, now I have a lot. No matter where I go, I know where I came from, South Side Bronx. But that never, ever happened in first century Israel. It couldn't possibly happen. Jesus said of the poor people that he knew that they cannot repay you. They can't now, and they never will. And that was the same for the crippled and the lame and the blind, people who couldn't even work as laborers or servants. They weren't even allowed to enter the temple. There was no help for them. There were no hospitals. There were no care homes. There were no state support programs. The lame and the crippled and the blind had even less hope than the poor. They were doomed to a life of begging. So those four people had a fixed place in their society, and it was a place that was right at the bottom, and they had no prospects whatever of climbing out of it. And it would be unfair to the Pharisees to say that they didn't care about the poor. The Pharisees did care about the poor, and they gave at least 10% of everything they owned to help the poor. But what Jesus asked them to do is altogether more difficult. He asked them to show the poor not just charity, but welcome, to treat them as friends and peers, to invite these people who have no prospects into their homes and to their own dining tables, to spend time with them, even to have fellowship with them. And we can imagine that as the Pharisees heard this idea, it sounded very radical, even horrifying, their rich neighbors and friends would probably scorn and ridicule them. But as we hear what Jesus has to say, we also recognize almost intuitively that what he says is right, that what he asks of them is right, that it's deeply good, that it does express God's heart toward the poor. Because God himself gives without any expectation of repayment, And he welcomes even the least desirable people. That's what God does. And that's who God is. And how much it must please God when his people do the same. Jesus promised the Pharisees that if they behaved in this way, God would be pleased. He said, you will be blessed. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just So next, we look at how the Pharisees responded to what Jesus asked of them, and that's in verse 15. We only hear what one of them had to say, and he said this, when one of them who who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I'm really not sure how to read that. (laughs) line. It's true. It's doubtless true. It's a true thing to say, but it really sounds like this guy wasn't paying any attention (laughs) Because it's hard to see how what he says connects with anything Jesus just said. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, here's what I think that Pharisee meant. First of all, I think he was thinking about the prophecy that we had read from Isaiah 25, which talks about the feast at the end of time, uh, which is at the resurrection of the just, which Jesus was talking about. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and God will swallow up death forever. So you hear that that's a promise of what's happening at the end, and that God's people will be called to dinner with God at the end after the resurrection. Um It's a banquet that God lays out for his redeemed and resurrected people. The Pharisee has that banquet in mind. And it's the same banquet that Revelation talks about in chapter 19 um, that we had read as well, where um, it calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that means the wedding feast after Jesus marries his church. So those ideas, I think, are the same idea in Scripture, that feast that happens at the end of time. And certainly, it's true to say that everyone who's invited to that banquet is blessed. That is the one invitation in all the world that's most worth having. So the Pharisee has that in mind when he says to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But I think what he's really doing is correcting Jesus for what Jesus asked him to do. Because what he's really saying is, Jesus, it's not who I invite to my table that matters. It's who God invites to his table. And that includes me. Look, here's my invitation. It says, child of Abraham, teacher of the law of Moses, part of the covenant people of God. I'm invited. So I already have God's blessing, and I don't need the blessing that you're offering me. So I don't think I'll bother to take care of the poor. Why should I? And if that's, right, if that's what that Pharisee is really saying, then we see in him a hardness of heart. He's resting on his idea of an agreement that he has with God, and he takes no interest in doing what pleases God. And that's why I think Jesus tells them all the parable of the great banquet. So in the parable, a man hosted a great banquet and he invited his friends. But when the time of the banquet arrived, all his friends refused to come. Now we should understand a bit of historical background here. So it was common practice at the time of Jesus for great banquets, like wedding feasts, to work like this. The host would decide he wanted to have a feast and he would send out his invitations to his friends well ahead of time. And the guests would reply like an RSVP, to say whether or not they're going to come. So then there was an intervening time, and uh, they would get the banquet prepared and ready. And when everything was ready, when the banquet was fully ready and all the food was cooked, the uh, host would send out his servant or a team of servants to go to all the guests who'd already said they were coming and to tell them, it's ready. It's time to come. Come to the banquet. Okay. So when Jesus tells this parable, he says that the host of the banquet was angry, angry with the people who declined his invitation. But he's not angry at them because they said no, particularly. He's angry because they said yes and let him go to all that hard work of getting the banquet ready. And then at the moment the banquet was ready and they sent out the servants to um, to welcome them in, they changed their minds. They dumped him. They stood him up. So what they did is they left the host with a ton of food, all hot and ready, but with nobody to eat it. They embarrassed the host. So the host responds by urgently recruiting new mouths to feed, first from among the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. There's that list again that we heard at the beginning of uh, our passage. And then finally, when there's still places at the table, He goes back again to the highways and the hedges. And those are places where they would have found the poorest of the poor. So in the parable, Jesus tells, the poor end up benefiting from the absence of the guests who were invited. The poor weren't initially invited in the parable, but they do end up with a place at the table. And so what happens to the guests? The master says at the end of the parable, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They don't get to eat it after all. Now, in that last sentence, Jesus does something very alarming. It's very small and subtle, but it's very alarming. Because in verse 24, when he says, For I tell you, the you in that sentence isn't singular anymore, it's plural. And that has enormous implications. Because what it means is that in the last sentence of the parable, we pop out of the story world and into reality. So we no longer have the master in the parable telling his singular servant. We have Jesus at the dinner table telling the plural Pharisees, for I tell you. So the I is now Jesus himself. He is the master. And it's become his banquet. And the men who were once invited, are the Pharisees themselves. And what he's saying to them, according to the parable, is not that they have been uninvited. They're not uninvited from the banquet. The master still wants them to be there, and he's sending his servant to come and summon them there. But they're showing in the parable, by their hardness of heart, that they've lost their appetite for God's final feast. They're no longer really interested in going at all, and they make lame excuses. So the things that they're preoccupied with now in the parable are a field, and some oxen, and a new bride. Which we could say are concerns about property, and about work, and about relationships. The servant has come to call them to the feast and then they're showing at that moment of decision what their hearts really care about, what they're really interested in. Their hearts have been choked by the weeds. As Jesus warned in his parable of the four soils, their seed has been choked by the weeds. Jesus said that the weeds were the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And that's what they live for now instead of living to please God. So although they're still invited to God's feast and God's house, they've lost their interest in going. So I want to summarize the flow of the conversation in Luke 14. It's a little hard to trace, but I want to summarize basically what's going on. Jesus starts by telling the Pharisees to invite the poor and the crippled to dine at their table. And one of the Pharisees replied, it's not who I invite to my table that matters, it's who God invites to his table. And Jesus answers, yes, but if, yes you are invited to God's table, but if you don't care now, about pleasing God with your table, neither will you care at the end whether you go to God's table. And Jesus' words in verse 24 are the last words that he ever speaks at a Pharisee's table in Luke. It's the last time that he gets invited to dinner. criticized before for holding my water glass too long. (laughs) So this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees leaves us with both an exciting invitation and a sober warning. It's on the one hand an exciting invitation to devote our lives to what pleases God, particularly by drawing near to the lost and the least. It's exciting to think that God has given us lives that can please him. We can make choices that please our Father God and that our Father God will reward us in heaven on the last day. But on the other hand, there's a sober warning. It's a warning not to let our hearts grow cold so that we ever come to the point where we're no longer interested in pleasing God. So first I want to think about that invitation. We know that our God cares for the poor. We see it everywhere in the Bible, and we see it here in Luke 14. He cares for the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And to that we could add so many others, the oppressed, the refugee, the elderly, the victims of abuse, those in prison, and on and on. God cares for them, for all of them. His heart overflows with compassion for anyone that society finds unworthy or unlovely. God cares for them. He wants to comfort them. He wants to rescue them. He wants to raise them up to dine like kings. So notice that in Luke 14, the poor get a feast at the end either way. Whatever the Pharisees do, the poor will feast. Either they get an invitation to dine with the Pharisees or they take the place of the Pharisees in the heavenly banquet. But either way, God makes sure the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind are fed, doesn't he? God's heart overflows with compassion for the poor, and he wants his people to take action. So it pleases God when his children care for the poor. When he sees love in action, it pleases God deeply. It's even the kind of behavior that he wants to reward at the resurrection of the just. It's so close to God's heart that we should expect that as we draw near to God, our own hearts will resonate with that same kind of compassion that God has. And so our care for the lost and the least will not only be our duty, but also our joy. As we come alongside the poor, we don't come magnanimously, but humbly. Because we remember that we ourselves are the poor. Possessing nothing but what we've been given by God's grace. So we know that the day we came to God, we were empty-handed, helpless, destitute. We were very unlovely. We had no hope apart from his mercy. We had no right to sit on God's gorgeous red velvet couch. In Downton Abbey, We had no right to do that, far less right than Carson had. And yet God has bridged that enormous chasm and invited us to dine at his table. And now Jesus asks us to do the same. It's the same thing he's done for us, to invite others to dine at our table, to come as one beggar to another, telling him where to find bread. And there are lots of different ways we might put this into practice. And I know many of you are already putting this into practice, Um, but one great way is the way that we're going to spotlight in the service today. Uh, A great example of this is the Kairos prison ministry um, that several people from this church have been involved with over the past year. So Aaron uh, was away last weekend on a Kairos men's weekend in a men's prison, and uh, he's going to stand up here and tell us about that a bit later. And six women uh, from this congregation are preparing to serve at a Kairos weekend in a women's prison next month. And uh, we're going to focus on praying for them and supporting their ministry later in this service. Now, Kairos... Uh, takes people from churches and trains them and does weekends in prison with the inmates. And they focus very heavily around the meal table. They place a strong emphasis on the meal table, on dining together. So during a Kairos weekend, um, the prisoners get to eat good food. Good food. It's something they almost never get. The food in prison is terrible. And they get good food for this weekend. And they get to dine with people from outside the prison walls. And that, I think, to most of the prisoners who take part, is the most meaningful part of the weekend. And it's a powerful witness to the beauty of the gospel. And it comes right out of what Jesus teaches in Luke 14. So that's the exciting invitation, to devote our lives to what pleases God, particularly by drawing near to the lost and the least. And now finally, there's a warning in this passage. Because the attitude of the Pharisees at this last dinner party that they ever had with Jesus is very unsettling. They were men who claimed to be devoted to God. But Jesus revealed that they actually had very little interest in living in a way that pleased God. And Jesus warned them that if they weren't interested in pleasing God now, then they wouldn't be interested in dining with God at the final banquet either. They would ultimately just make lame excuses and choose not to come. So here's a way that a New Testament scholar in England summarized this part of Luke 14, which I think is very powerful. He said this, No one can enter the kingdom without the invitation of God. And no one can remain outside it but by his own deliberate choice. So man cannot save himself, but he can damn himself. I would add that we choose to remain outside when we end up caring more about what pleases ourselves and the people around us than we do about what pleases God. And that's frighteningly easy to do. So my question for us today as we close is, Are we living our lives to please God? Are we living our lives to please God? And I know that we're not perfect, and we're very far from perfect, and we blow it all the time, and there's mercy for that. But is pleasing God what we want from our lives? Is that top of our priority list? Do we live each day so that God will be pleased with us? Not our bosses or our teachers, or our parents, or our friends, or even ourselves, but that God will be pleased with us? Are we hungry to learn what will please him, and how we can put a smile on his face? Are we grieved with our own failures and sins because they disappoint God? Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. And are we quick to confess and repent so that we can restore our relationship with God? It's so easy for us to get distracted and make it about other things. But Jesus says that loving God and pleasing him needs to stay the main thing. Now, as I've studied this word from Luke 14 this week, it's actually, it's really been a bit of a wake-up call for me. And um, I've made a focus in my prayer times in the morning of beginning my days by asking God simply, Lord, how can I please you today? And it's not that I've never prayed that before, but lately i found that other questions have been crowding in on my mind. And I found it very refreshing just to return to this simple question. Lord, how can I please you today? It feels very pure and simple and close to the heart of things. And I wanna close with a small everyday example which I'm a little bit embarrassed to share, honestly, um, because it's so trivial. But um, I want to show you just how this has worked in my heart this week. So Friday's are my day off, uh, some of you know. It's my day of rest, and Sarah usually takes the day off with me. But this past Friday, two days ago, Sarah had a morning meeting. So um, I had a few hours off of free time, by my free time by myself. And that really doesn't happen very often. So I had to make a decision about how to spend that time, especially now there's no more Downton Abbey. Um, So as I woke up on Friday, my my mind was crowded with all kinds of delicious possibilities. I could read my book in bed, or take a bike ride, or watch that movie I've been waiting to see. Or do some work in the yard. Or go out to buy those things I've needed from Lowe's. So basically I was consumed with ideas about how to please myself. But then I remembered I was preaching on Sunday about living to please God. (laughs) So I took myself, a little bit reluctantly, to the place of prayer. And asked God my question. Lord, how can I please you today? With this day? With this time? And how can I keep this As a holy day of rest. And as I was praying, uh, the Lord ruled out some of my options. He's like, don't do this. And he suggested a couple of other things. Um, But basically, during my prayer time, um, I got this great sense of peace and freedom. And I left with a sense that I could live the day wholeheartedly. Um, And I I left my prayer prayer time and I went uh, on with the day. And I chose from the options that the Lord had given me in that day. And I found that I was confident that I was living to please God. And I was aware of his company with me, moment by moment. And I was content with the ups and downs that the day brought. He gave me a few little ideas of ways to bless Sarah. And later on in the day, she said that she'd noticed a real difference in me. (laughs) You can ask her what she meant. Uh, (laughs) Um, Now, I feel a little embarrassed to share that story because it's so simple, and it's something I should have learned so much sooner, or at least remembered better. But it's really been a word of life to me this week, and I wanted to share it with you to focus our attention on, Lord, how can I please you with my life, with my day, with my time? And I pray that Luke 14 will also be a word of life to you this week.